Hey, everybody, this is Larry the Cable Guy. Check this out. So I'm in my truck driving with my buddy, and we was heading up to the men's warehouse to fart in the suits, and he's listening to his phone. And I said, that sounds like Hermes Sadler. He said, it is Hermes Sadler. He's got a podcast called Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. I said, Sadler and the Senator? He said, yeah, that's his good buddy, Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley. I said, well, what in the world? He didn't know this. I said, did you know that Hermie Sadler was voted one of the 50 best-looking drivers in NASCAR? He said, I did not know that. I said, because it ain't true. <laughs> you never know, though. He never takes off his helmet. But I know one thing. This show, Leaning Right, Turning Left, is good. So pull up a chair right there by your phone, get yourself a cold beer, and give a listen right here to this week's episode of Leaning Right, Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. I'll tell you what, I bet Michael Waltrip's even listening. He's always wanted to do something like that. Oh, Sadler, got another one over on Waltrip. Get her done! I'm Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley, and I'm leaning right. And I'm former NASCAR driver, Hermie Sadler, and I'm turning left, leaning right and turning left with Sadler in the Senator. Once again, it's back on the air, powered yes. by Pace and Hey, Hermie, how you doing? I mean, should Senator, I say how are you? Dr. Sadler? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I mean, we should be recording the, the 45 minutes we sit here and talk uh, before we even start this thing going. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. And you just made me laugh right as we started, as you usually do. Man, I miss you. I miss you. We haven't seen each other in a couple of weeks. And uh, happy late Thanksgiving. I know we talked to it back then, but uh, we took a week off. But we're back. Yeah. We're back. But we're missing we're our back. man purse. Our man purse. Shep Miles is not here. But he might have some more I time. I saw Shep Miles last night. Did you? Now, wait, you went to a basketball game last night with some notables, with some notable people. Talking about a, you calling Shep Miles a notable? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, he's former town well, council. He was, he was more like an audible because <laughs> I had a free ticket. Um, <laughs> had an extra ticket. But no, we went to uh, Chapel Hill last night. Uh, I carried... Uh, our third wheel, uh, the swear bear himself, yeah. Mr. Shep Miles. Oh, Sheppy. I carried our local, uh, one of our local, I find, uh, we call him the country lawyer here in town, Billy Newsom. Oh, wow. Who just recently closed his private practice here in Emporia and went to work for your friend, Attorney General Jason Miares. Oh, that's uh, right. In Richmond. And uh, the fourth in the group, that it's a very rare occasion, you know, Bill, you know, I'm a uh, a graduate of the University of North Carolina, as is my daughter. She cheered for the Tar Heels for four years. You tell me that it's all the very time. Rare, it's very rare that I take somebody to a home basketball game that pulls for the other team. But last night I did it because uh, my fourth, uh, my third guest, uh, the fourth member of our party, was a former governor of Virginia, George Allen. Great man. Who is a fan of the Tennessee Volunteers. And so uh, I carried Governor Allen along with Shep and Billy. We loaded up in the car and went to Chapel Hill last night. We had a great dinner prior to the game. Went to the game. The Tar Heels won. And I always enjoy the games. But you know, like I do, I had some great conversations with uh, Governor Allen to and from Emporia to Chapel Hill and back last night. He's just a great Virginian. Yes. Uh, I wish more people thought like he did and 
you know, he um, he simplifies things, a lot of things that I think are very, very complicated. He makes them very, very simple. You mm-hmm. know, and so you might say, you carry George Allen, you know, to UNC and he pulls for Tennessee. You know why I'm okay with that? Because George Allen is one of the few politicians I know, and you're one of them too, Bill Stanley, that you are what you are, you stand for what you stand for, you pull for who you pull for, regardless of who you're talking to or what group of people you're around or how it may, how it, how it may be positive or negative with the group. You know, if somebody likes Tennessee, let them pull for Tennessee. And I like the fact that uh, he is unashamed in what his beliefs are, whether it be sports teams, whether it be politics, whether it be social issues. And, you know, people don't always agree, but I like the fact, and there are some people in Richmond that that we're battling now that you that you and I both know that seem to change their views or what they believe in based on who they're talking to. But Governor Allen is not one of those people. No. No, and he's been that way since, geez, he was in the House of Delegates and then was governor. Um, he was a congressman, I think, and they wrote him out of his district, and so he ran for governor and won. And, I mean, you know, he's not afraid. He's unabashed. And he's, you never know with many politicians where they stand because that is a movable object. With George Allen, you know where he stands. He's concrete, and he makes a lot of sense. And, he, and I think... It was a big loss for Virginia when he was beaten um, for the United States Senate. And, you know, the Democrats back then early on were, were using even just a small comment he made kind of jokingly and, and tried to make him into something he wasn't, which he's not a racist. Um, you know, son of the great, um, you know, Coach Allen of the, the Redskins, great home field guy when it comes to the Redskins. Uh, he was on the show early on. You did that individual interview with him, which was just, I think, a classic. And uh, he was calling the the new name of the Washington Redskins the Washington what commodes, the woke commodes, <laughs> the woke commodes. And so you know, here's a guy that's unafraid to say that you wouldn't hear that out of any politician, even a retired one. They still seem to maintain that, you know, that guarded uh, response. Um, but he's also a great person for wisdom when you need some good advice, how to handle a situation, or even what to think. You know, where where should I be on some of this? What, he starts with your principles. He starts with freedom. He starts with liberty. And then that's your filter and God. And, and that's your filter and your faith and, and your character and integrity. And I don't think you can ever, as a politician, go wrong when those are the things that guide you. That's what guides me. Uh, but he's been one of my heroes forever. And I saw him uh, not too long ago. Um, he wrote an article, an op-ed about skill games, which I think we should probably talk about. But first, yeah, I want to ask you this. Did he show up with half of his face painted orange and half of his face painted white and did someone take a picture of him and said he hates oranges <laughs> I mean, to, you know have you seen that have you seen what was going on with that that young man at the kansas city chief game who was wearing had uh half of his face painted black half of it uh painted red was wearing an indian headdress and one uh some some news article out of deadspin i guess the guy's name was caron phillips said that this kid was not only racist, he was culturally appropriating the Indian nation, the Native Americans, made a big deal about how the NFL is racist and they should do something about this kid. And they only took half, they took a picture of half of his face and made it look like he was out there at a football game in blackface, not 
what was really the truth was half black, half red. Those are the colors of the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. And it turns out the kid is a Native American and descendant of one of the tribal elders in a, in a uh, tribe that's recognized nationally in California. I mean, what do you think of that? That's just, that's just what, unfortunately, what our country has come to when people are trying to push uh, agendas and try to divide people try to find ways to separate people. And, and there, there's a lot of people in this world, Bill, as you know, as good or better than I do, that want people to be divided and want people to argue and want people to be violent and all these kind of things. And uh, that's just sad. But to answer your question, uh, Governor Allen did proudly wear his orange Tennessee shirt to dinner. I went to <laughs> dinner with, uh, we went to dinner with a group of people that included um, Tyler Hansbrough, you know, the yeah. all-time leading scorer in the history of the ACC. Uh, Had him on the show. National Player of the Year and National Champion. Yep. You know, so he was not afraid to sit beside Tyler Hansbrough, one of the <laughs> most decorated Tar Heels of all time with his Tennessee shirt on. But I will tell you this. We were at a game in Chapel Hill. He was wearing the colors of the visiting Tennessee Volunteers. He hasn't been governor in Virginia since what 1997 1998 yeah. whatever yeah. the case may be yep but he took i know this pisses you off when i'm around <laughs> you and people want to take my picture and not yours right we I, walked through the smith center to get to our seats and no less than about 10 people stopped us to take pictures with governor george allen on his way to our seats so that's how well known he is wearing a Tennessee shirt at a UNC basketball game on a Wednesday night, you know, 20 plus years after he left the office of the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. And yeah, it's not that I get jealous or anything. It's just, yes, you do. Listen, I, yes, had, you do. I had somebody in here doing a real estate transaction and I gave them um, our refrigerator magnets for our, for our podcast. And they're like, Oh, Hermes Adler, Hermes Adler, Hermes Adler. I'm like, oh, fuck, it's just a fish. <laughs> here we go again. <laughs> Hermes Adler, Hermes Adler. Uh, so one more thing on George Allen before we move on. Everybody that listens to this podcast that hear us talk about our skill game lawsuit and this and that and the other, rest assured that governor George Allen is on the side of a fair government, a free market system, and equal opportunity for all, which should include, in his own words, as he said on this podcast when he was on it, and as he told me last night, the government should not be overreaching into small business um, and picking winners and losers. The government should be fair, and he is hoping and uh, is on the side of the Commonwealth of Virginia fairly taxing and regulating these skill games, these legitimate skill games, to run in these convenience stores, truck stops, restaurants, and bars. Um, he understands the business environment that we're all currently facing as small business owners in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, and he's on the side of, of skill gains because fairly taxing and regulating skill gains and letting them participate in the growing gaming industry that the Commonwealth of Virginia decide to open the doors to, not us. Uh, he's on the side of fairness and uh, he's a good one to have on our side. Yeah, and I thought that was a really powerful op-ed to to put out. I thought the timing was pretty pretty great. I mean, it was after, of course, 
If you've been listening to this podcast, uh, then you know that we've been fighting for the past three years, man, uh, to keep small businesses involved in the gaming industry, which of course was passed by our general assembly. I voted against it. Um, but once it was passed, then it seemed patently unfair that small businesses like your small business, uh, could not participate in the, in the emerging gaming industry, uh, especially because they wanted to hold on to a monopoly and keep it small and control it all as we've said before. And yet you stood up and said, wait a minute, that's not fair. We had a couple cocktails and we said, let's do this, man. And the grassroots effort, we started to defend small businesses and got an injunction, which kept, after the games were turned off, turned them back on, kept them on for 23 months and fought this thing, fought this thing uh, through two administrations, two attorney generals, started out with Democrats. Now we got Republicans. And then, you know, a couple weeks back, three weeks back now, uh, a dark moment in time in my legal career, because I hate to lose more than I love to win. Uh, the Supreme Court, I guess that was over a month ago, man. The uh, Supreme Court said that um, video skill games are gambling and as such then not protected um, by uh, the First Amendment, as we had argued, and said we weren't likely to succeed on the merits of our injunction. So therefore, sent it back, vacated the injunction, and the circuit court was left with nothing other. And I don't think that circuit court, as we talked about in the previous uh, episode was too happy about it, but said, my hands are basically tied. These pieces of legislation are written by lawyers who obviously have a, a bent or a slant towards skill ga- or towards casinos and therefore uh, dismissed our case. And so that's what happened. And now we're in this huge flux, man. Ever, since the last time you and I talked, we've seen all these different counties uh, having different responses about whether they want to enforce, not enforce, what they will enforce, what they won't enforce. The very fear that you and I had about selective enforcement that, you know, suddenly they're picking winners and losers on who's going to get arrested and who's not, what's a skill game and what's not, because the statute that we fought still has a crazy, untenable, I mean, not even understandable definition of what a skill game is uh, to give those prosecutors and the state police a guide path, a proper guideline by which to determine what's a legal skill game, what's an illegal game of chance, what's an illegal skill game. And here we have even now different dates of enforcement. Some people are saying, you know, we, we had negotiated after the, uh, after the court ruled to say November 15th, you know, Paysomatic, our sponsor, Queen of Virginia, skill games, people said, we'll turn our games off November 15th. And, and it's now past November, November 15th, two weeks later, here we are at the end of November, just at the beginning of December. They've turned off their games, but I walk into convenience stores and I don't know about you, but there's some games that are still on that are not Queen of Virginia, not Paysomatic, not Vanilla, games of chance still rocking and rolling, but I've got some very scared convenience store owners wondering, is the SWAT team going to come in, shut them down, arrest them, charge them with felonies for possession of these, uh, of these games, you know, charge them with civil penalties of $25,000 per machine, put them out of business at the same time that the lawful operators of skill games who shut the games down with Queen of Virginia are wondering if they can even make ends meet or keep their doors open through the holiday season because their margins are so small due to high inflation, high gas prices, high prices on the, on the things they sell, uh, you know, and, and high wages. You know, I think what we've seen now since the Supreme Court ruling and the granting of uh, summary judgment in the Circuit Court of Greensville County, I see, I see a huge mess. And I see a lot of risk 
for a lot of regular business owners who are just trying to get by, trying to live the American dream even, who have turned into criminals overnight because of bad decision-making, policy decision-making by the General Assembly, led by the nose of the casino, uh, by the casinos, and the bad decision, quite frankly, in my opinion, I don't agree with the Supreme Court decision, and I'll tell you why in a minute, uh, but, um, you know, and now all sorts of different enforcements um, going on or not going on in different county cities and towns. It's a mess. Yes, it's uh, devastating to a lot of people. Um, I've heard from dozen easily since our last appearance in court when the judge, not surprisingly at that point, really um, dismissed our case based on, as you said, the Supreme Court really handcuffing um, the circuit court on this issue. But I think ironically, and I had this conversation with Governor Allen last night, I think ironically the the um, cockiness or the whatever the right word you want to use that the casinos have had in this process, especially getting towards the end, uh, getting this opinion from the Supreme Court, has really revitalized the small business community and really shaken up a lot of people, not only business owners and their families, but also people in the General Assembly that in, you know, and maybe prior to now, Bill, were not on our side or didn't understand really and truly what we were fighting for. A lot of people in the General Assembly were just going off what somebody else said or, you know, and it's easy in life when things don't affect you to, to, to not have the passion about it. But a lot more people have reached out to me even in the General Assembly that are saying, you know what, now I better understand what you guys have been fighting for and why and why this is so bad because they're hearing from small businesses, small business owners in their district, and they know that it could hurt them politically and with votes and otherwise, but they also are starting to understand something that we've talked about since day one, Bill, and that is these small businesses, including mine, the convenience stores, truck stops, restaurants, and bars, Keep that money and reinvest these profits into the Commonwealth of Virginia. And these casinos, in large part, take their profits. And these out-of-state special interest groups take these monies and profits and invest them out-of-state. And when you think about the whole totality of the picture, um, it's really something that um, you know, we really need to be rethinking what we're doing and why. And who is running the government? Yeah. Is the General Assembly in charge of the government or are the casinos and the lobbyists and the out-of-state special interest in charge of the government? That's something y'all need to decide, pal, when y'all <laughs> go back to in session in January. Who's the boss? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think I know the answer to that, but I thought I knew the answer to that before this all happened. And, uh, you know, you and I have had conversation after conversation, hours and hours. We've talked about these issues and the importance, really. You know, why we're doing this is to try to save, you know, you had skill games in your truck stops and your convenience stores and your restaurants. Uh, they were great for the, the tr- overland truckers that were coming in and, and playing these games. They enjoyed them. They won. They knew how to play the game. It's a game of skill. It's not a game of chance. We talked about that before. Game of skill means that you have, it's predominantly skill. You use your skill to win every time and you can win every time using your skill. Game of chances. Your, your famous line was uh, put the money in, press the button and hope. And that's a game of chance. So that's the difference. And that's why these weren't gambling devices. I'll say this too. The, the superior court of, of 
Pennsylvania, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, a you know a court uh, basically here in Virginia, here in Pennsylvania, we're a Commonwealth, so is uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. They've been fighting the skill game fight up there, and the ruling was just handed down, and it's a well reasoned, well thought out ruling. And I just read it, and guess what they said? They said skill games are not slot machines. They made a legal binding finding on that. And guess what they also said? Skill games are not gambling per se because of the difference that we just talked about, uh, what I was saying, the difference between a game of chance and a game of skill. So they won in Pennsylvania. And if you had taken that language and if there had been that reasoning, I think by our Virginia Supreme Court, or if they'd even had that reasoning to consider, then maybe the outcome in the Virginia Supreme Court and our, and our circuit court of Greensville would have been different. Now, I'm going to send you that opinion. I don't know if you've got it or not, but let me tell you, I read it and it just, it should have been something we had as a ruling and would have had as a ruling, I think, in the circuit court had not the Supreme Court interceded. But I think the Supreme Court in Virginia, in my humble opinion, and I have a right to have that, got it wrong. And here was this court of appeal basically in Pennsylvania saying that Virginia got it wrong, agreeing with me, and along that analysis, properly laid out, factually developed, the same way when we developed our, our record, uh, found that these are predominantly skill, they're different than a game of chance, and so therefore they are not gambling per se, and they're not slot machines, something different than what our Virginia Supreme Court found out. Bill, I, I had this conversation with Governor Allen last night, Let's just say, you know, you and I, some time ago, uh, we went and filmed a little segment at uh, Dave and Buster's. Mm-hmm. For the court case. Let's just say you and I are in Dave and Buster's, and this guy walks up beside us to the Pac-Man machine at Dave and Buster's, swipes his card, and he starts playing Pac-Man. And he's played Pac-Man so many times that he has learned the patterns for every stage of Pac-Man so every time he plays the game, he gets through like five different screens because he's learned the pattern of Pac-Man. So when he sits down and puts his money in Pac-Man and earns three, four, five new games or free games of play on Pac-Man because he's learned the patterns over time, is that luck or is that skill? Skill. Okay. I mean, I don't think anybody okay. would disagree with that. Skill. Right. So, and I said, same thing. I said, Governor Allen, I said, you know, because we were talking about the stages of our lawsuit. And I said, you know, Governor Allen played football at the University of Virginia and, you know, athlete, understand, love sports, all that. I said, Governor Allen, what if, you know, we went to the game last night. I said, what if one of these players on the Tennessee Volunteers that was a 90% free throw shooter decided to go to the Virginia State Fair, go up, pay five bucks to the attendant, shoot a free throw, which you can certainly do at the Virginia State Fair, and if you make the shot, you win a huge stuffed animal worth about 50, 60 bucks. If you pay your money, and if you're a great basketball player, and you shoot that free throw, and you make it and win that stuffed animal, is that luck or is that skill? You know, in George Allen, skill is guys, you know, I said, okay. So what's the difference? The difference is the casinos really only want to go after games that look like games of chance or slot machines 
even though they don't play that way. Yeah. And by the way, only the ones that are in convenience stores, truck stops, restaurants, and bars. Because to the same point, as I told Governor Allen, I said, I know people that used to come in my truck stop and my people that worked there, when they showed up and walked in, they knew. They said, that guy is going to beat that machine to death because he's learned how to beat the machine. And so when a guy sits down and puts his money in knowing how to follow the machine and how to play the game, you know, he's going to beat the machine. And we had testimony and experts that were ready to testify at our trial, which we should still be preparing for. They said, here's a group of people and here's how we can prove it. That win 105% of the time, but they don't want to hear that. Of course, you know, so, you know, it's a clear distinction between when a player can use his or her skill to win versus when it's a predetermined outcome. But they don't want to hear. They want to do their best to blur, muddy the water, blur the lines to the average people between what is skill and what is chance. And unfortunately, uh, the Supreme Court bought that argument from the Attorney General's office, and here we are. But it is a clear line between games of skill and games of chance, and they don't want to acknowledge the fact that what they're really trying to do is target a certain look of a game only at certain locations, hence the selective enforcement um, and the confusion that our lawsuit and the sudden end to our lawsuit by the Supreme Court and ultimately by the circuit court has caused, and it's all bad. Yeah, and it, and not only that, you've got a lot of small businesses, as I've said, worried about keeping the doors open, but also worried about some some you know legal authority busting through the door and shutting down their business because they have a game on, or they they might have the game unplugged, but yet possession of that gaming device under the law, as it's written by the casinos through the budget bill, would make it uh, possession of an illegal gambling device, which it's not, but still they could get prosecuted. They'd have to hire a lawyer like me. Uh, lawyers like me are not cheap. Um, even when we're sympathetic to our client, you know, we still have to keep our lights on. We run a business too. And that can be the difference between them being open or closed as well, whether they had the games on or not, by being subjected to prosecution. And then prosecution, like in Wise County, that may not be the same in Roanoke County, which may not be the same in Halifax County, which may not be the same in Henrico County. Uh, some Commonwealth attorneys may say, look, I'm a, I don't have the resources to go out and prosecute. I don't have the police. We're trying to fight crime. This is not something high on my radar. We're asking you to turn them off, but we're really not going to prosecute. And then there's others. Most of the counties around, let's say, Bristol, who the, everything they see, the, a moving target, they're going to bust, but they're still not going to bust the uh, Miss Pac-Man. They're still not going to bust the crane game where you get that teddy bear out using the crane, which is a skill game under the definition illegal. They're going to leave those on. So now you got selective enforcement. Now you got fear in a community that's keeping our communities alive, keeping those businesses alive. Sometimes those convenience stores and restaurants are in food deserts. So this is where a lot of the support and the source of food is for these smaller rural communities or even the inner cities where the grocery stores won't go. And they're living in fear right now. And I mean, I've even got a clip here and hopefully uh, I'm not a smart guy, but I'm going to try to play it for you. This is just another example of what we're hearing from owners who are fearing uh, that the ruling by the Supreme Court 
and the unfortunate resulting order uh, from the Greensville Circuit Court on our case is causing. Now, let's hope, I'm going to press this button, my son has left the room, he's like my board guy, but I'm going to play this, and Hermie, tell me if you can hear it. Hopefully everybody can hear it right now. This is a owner talking to a news reporter about what the shutdown of skill games will do to their businesses. Our food has gone up, all the uh, inflation has gone up on everything. The skill games have helped us get through that. I had retired people that come in and just for entertainment purposes would come in and play two or three times a day. We were always selling something to go along with it, or they eat. Um, and now there's no one here. Um, the last time they shut us down, the first month was a 50% loss in sales. They're hurting the small business people. Um, again, there's hundreds of thousands of us out here that are, are looking to just make um, a living. How about some of that? I didn't hear that. You didn't hear it? <laughs> no. <laughs> God, I hope the rest of the people did. If not, we'll put it in there. But, but this was an owner saying... You know, when skill games were on, it was helpful. When they were shut off, you know, it cost them, the first time, it cost them 50% of their businesses, uh, of their of their business. Um, and the real fear that they have and what this is going to do to their business, um, and that really they were losing clientele who would come in and play the games, but also buy other things. And so um, uh, hopefully we can get that clip on there, and hopefully it's in, in the recording. I'm sorry you didn't hear it, but... Uh, but that's, I heard it through my uh, earphones and hopefully the rest of the people heard it. But that, that's just one store owner who is echoing, I think, all of the concerns of every store owner, every store owner, small business owner that you represented in Sadler versus the Commonwealth of Virginia so boldly. And we're so successful in keeping these stores open for 22 months, these games on for 23 months, I guess it was. And uh, ultimately, um, you know, are now in this confusing position as we just talked about. Uh, it's got to be a lot of fear out there with the convenience store owners, but I want them to know that you and I are not giving up the fight. We think the fight comes in two forms. One, we uh, don't have a final order entered in the case yet, but we are intending to appeal. We think we have some good appeal um, points that we could win. I think the Pennsylvania case that we were just talking about could help us very much uh, in that appeal. But also where we're really going to have to do this is in the legislature. Uh, because ultimately a legislative solution is required. And and I want to talk about that a little bit with you because, you know, you're the one that was there. And when we started talking, when I was in the legislature, I was against gambling, but you convinced me that this was different. And, and so when these orders were coming down, there were some concerned legislators. And let me, let me say this, Herm. I went to the Senate uh, finance retreat up in Tyson's Corner where I used to live, and that place is a zoo. Um, I don't even recognize it anymore. But legislator after legislator after legislator was coming to me and saying, hey, man, what do we do? And just like you were saying, they're like, whoa, you know, they, they were taking our injunction for granted. They thought this was going to be ongoing, that they had normalcy, you know, in their districts. And then all of these small business owners coming to them saying, you are ruining my business. You're going to cause me to shut down. You're going to put me in, a, in peril. I, I can't even hire people you know, to, to pay the high wage that you guys have mandated. And now you take this one source of revenue away from us, you know, and, and if you remember uh, <laughs> Janet Howell, the outgoing chairman of the, the finance committee, when that was brought to her attention said, well, you just better go find some other way to make money. And there is no other way to make money in the convenience stores and, and was just feeding into the hands of the casino. So 
So the following legislators uh, sent a letter to the governor on November 7th. I've sent it to you, Herm, so I think you have it in front of you. Uh, it was Terry Kilgore, Republican from Southwest Virginia, Rob Bloxham from the Eastern Shore, Mark Sickles, Democrat from Northern Virginia, Michael Webbert, uh, Democrat, from, I mean, I'm sorry, Republican from uh, the Northern part of the state, Tony Wilt from the Central part of the state, Siobhan Donovan, who unfortunately lost her reelection bid, Louise Lucas, your friend, your pal, your buddy, Cree Deeds, Senator from Charlottesville, Richard Stewart. Uh, from the Northern Neck, he's a Republican. T. Travis Hackworth, my good friend from Southwest Virginia, and Bill DeStefan. And I've got to, I'm going to read it to you so that the listeners who are very grateful for listening can understand how the, how the legislature, in terms of its view of skill games, have changed. And I think it's because of a, a lot of what you've done, Herman. And so I think this is important. But they sent a letter on November 7th of this year to Governor Glenn Youngkin. Dear Governor Yunkin, we write to you regarding an urgent matter impacting thousands of small businesses across the Commonwealth. As you are aware, a recent opinion issued by the Virginia Supreme Court panel of three justices has removed a temporary restraining order that was providing clarity and certainty to Virginia business owners for the continued operation of these games. Per guidance from Attorney General Jason Miares, disparate and random enforcement by localities could begin as soon as November 15th, 2023. As we approach the holiday season, small businesses in our communities are reeling and fearful that they may be forced to lay off employees or even close their doors for good without the income and stability that these games provide. Accordingly, we collectively, and this is bipartisan, Democrats and Republicans coming together, we collectively request that your administration and the department it's, and the departments it oversees delay the enforcement of the skill games uh, enforcement currently in operation until the Virginia General Assembly can convene in 2024 to develop clarity and a permanent legal and regulatory structure for these struggling small businesses. We fully, we are fully committed to working towards a permanent solution that will ensure appropriate comprehensive regulation, taxation, and full enforcement of this type of gaming. And we are confident this will, this will root out and eliminate the proliferation of illegal gaming in our Commonwealth, sincerely signed by all those legislators. Most of them are in leadership, most with seniority and from across the Commonwealth. Now it seems pretty clear to me what they were asking. Doesn't you, I mean, please. They, they were asking for given the situation with the Supreme court and ultimately the decision they made, they're asking attorney general, Jason Miares to ask the Commonwealth attorneys locally to delay any type of enforcement on the operation of these games until after the General Assembly session in 2024. And my question to you is, did Attorney General Jason Miares do that? No. Okay. I mean, so, so they made it pretty clear. Hey, he gave us to the November 15th. I mean, I'll give that to him. You know, after the ruling, the ruling was, it was, it was more than a month. He gave for these games to wind down, understanding what the problems could be. Um, you know, but you and I talked about this. We reached out to them in the prior podcast episode. We reached out to them in a number of ways and a number of times to try to find a resolution that would save these small businesses and save them from becoming criminals overnight, even after the Supreme Court decision. But even before then, we tried to resolve this matter with them. And we understand, you know, his position is, or their position is, are, is our, uh, we're here to enforce Virginia law. Well, not if it's an illegal law or a bad law. And they were not only the lawyers, but they were also the defendants. And they could have 
resolve that issue. We've talked about that in the prior podcast. If you haven't listened to us before, go back one podcast. You'll hear us talk about these things um, after the circuit court uh, outcome, which dismissed our case. So you think all these very powerful, very influential, very good legislators have sent this letter to Governor Yunkin. And it's a very clear request. Please delay enforcement until we can get this fixed, right? Right. You know, this this is not clear. We've passed a law that wasn't clear. The potential for damage in small businesses is huge. I think, the, you know, the governor, the attorney general, were sitting on an ability to say, you know what, you're right. We're going to take these matters into our hands. We believe in the enforcement of law, but but this has an adverse effect. Some laws are not you know, don't work out and are not enforced in the way that they were intended by the General Assembly. Let's see if we can find a solution. Here's the letter they got some 13 days, almost two weeks later from the governor's office, and I'll read it to you. And you've seen it too, haven't you? Right. So I want you to comment on this. Dear senators and delegates, thank you for your letter of November 7th, 2023, requesting that our administration delay enforcement of the laws relating to skill games. Two courts, including the Supreme Court of Virginia, have ruled that the law passed by the General Assembly in 2020 is constitutional and enforceable. As you know, enforcement of the skill game statutes is largely the responsibility of local law enforcement, and prosecutorial decisions are primarily for the elected Commonwealth's attorneys in each jurisdiction to make. As I've repeatedly stated over the past two years, Commonwealth's attorneys should not pick and choose which laws to prosecute. I appreciate you letting me know your plans to address this issue when the new General Assembly session convenes. I look forward to considering any legislation you may send me. That was a response from the governor. Sincerely, Glenn Young, governor. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to me, my opinion is that's an insult to the people that actually wrote the letter on November 7th in the General Assembly. That showed no commitment to say, hey, maybe you're right. Maybe I'll direct my department's not to enforce, but hey, it's still left up to the localities. And I agree with you, and I will sign a piece of legislation when it comes across my desk that fairly taxes and regulates these small businesses and allows them to be on what he had said but previously over and over to create a level playing field in the gaming and gambling marketplace. That wasn't what that letter was. Am I wrong? No, I mean, I think the letter speaks loudly that despite... What I have felt like all along, I, look, I'll be honest with you, I have felt like all along that, you know, Governor Yunkin and Jason Miares, they were not in office when this initial bill was signed. Correct. That was Ralph Northam and Mark Herring. Yes. They unfortunately inherited this situation. And I have, quite frankly, always felt like that. Jason Miares and Glenn Youngkin believed principally what we believe in, which is a level playing field, fair government, the free market system, all of these things that this SB 971 from the beginning has flown right in the face of. And I can only say that it's disappointing for our Attorney General, Jason Miares, and our Governor to, I guess a nice way to say it, to decline to come out and take a meaningful stand in support of small businesses against out-of-state special interest in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And I really thought after this last election cycle, 
which you know you and I had a a little bit of a debate back and forth on what did the elections mean, mm-hmm. how successful were the Republicans, what do some of the close calls or the defeats mean? Because it wasn't the overwhelming endorsement of Yunkin's agenda and what his plans may or may not be for the next two years that Republicans and conservatives were working towards or hoping for. So I kind of felt like maybe Jason Miares, who I can only assume has more political aspirations in the future, Mm -hmm. and Glenn Youngkin, who I think probably has more political aspirations in the future, to, I thought, I was hoping they would kind of take a moment to, is the right word, read the tea leaves on what is going on right here at home in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and look at this as an opportunity to throw a lifeline to these small businesses, they wouldn't have to give up anything. They would simply be saying, hey, as governor, I can only sign laws that are brought to my desk. Jason Miares, as attorney general, I can only enforce what laws that are signed by the the legislature. We think this got messed up. So in this case, let's kick it back to the General Assembly because we think there's more of a, you know, more of a, um, uh, a a drive to get this right this time because they obviously got it wrong last time. Yeah, we think there's momentum to get this right. Hey, Bill Stanley. Hey, General Assembly. Hey, Louise Lucas. You know, hey, Terry Kilgore. Y'all messed this up. Y'all, we're going to give y'all a chance to fix it. Then send it back to us. I can sign it, and 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 Attorney General Miyares can enforce it. And so, but they have just declined in a, in a time, Bill, where there's never been a time that, that people around this issue need more clarity. We need some clarity and for our leaders to stand up and be clear and concise about what they believe and why. And our governor, I will nicely say, had an opportunity here to respond to legislators to make it clear to them what he, where he stands on this issue. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he quite did that. No, it's not clear at all. I mean, I'm, you know, Hey, I'll look at any bill that comes across your desk. Well, that that's kind of what you got to do to every bill. And some of them you're going to veto and probably this year a lot you're going to veto, but this seems to me, you know, remember the qu- request again was from these members of the general assembly, very good people. This is an urgent matter. This urgent matter impacts thousands of small businesses in Virginia. Um, we don't have a lot of clarity and certainty uh, given to these Virginia small businesses in its current form. The law we passed was basically in the budget, hastily put together, but obviously effective enough to to benefit the casino interests, obviously. And we see now the effect of what this law is. And all we're asking you to do is not enforce it right now. Give us a shot. Don't put these small business owners in jail yet. Give us a shot. Let us see what we can do. Let us come back to the General Assembly session. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, the governor has executive order power, the general assembly, uh, the attorney general has certainly obviously, um, persuasive abilities with our commonwealth attorneys and our prosecutors and city prosecutors and our state police officers and, 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 and other investigative agencies, because they asked based on our conversations that I had with them when the order came down and vacating the injunction, which mandated at the time the injunction was vacated by the Supreme court, that these machines go off. They said, hey, 
we understand. And I give Miari's a lot of credit and his, and his deputy, a lot of credit. Hey, uh, we, we get that. And they said, okay, let's go 15 days. Well, what we saw in the 15 days as we were just talking about earlier was a whole lot more confusion, a whole lot more fear. And really what turning off these machines, even on November 15th would do to these small businesses, how it would hurt them and hurt them in a way as we were going, as the letter says, as we approach the holiday season, Small businesses in our communities are reeling and fearful that they may be forced to lay off employees or close their doors for good without the income and stability that the skill games provide. And so the request was merely just, you know, can you just delay? Let's see what we can do. And, and I think this has got to be a bipartisan issue to solve. But the Democrats are the ones that are, you know, the Louise Lucases, as, as, as you know, and the leaders on the Democrat side said, we're going to fix this. We're the people to do it. And I think the governor missed a great opportunity, a, a bit of a stumble here uh, to stand with small businesses and do this together in a bipartisan way. My fear is that, that this may create some partisanship, which it should not. But I think we need to find a piece of legislation that's not, a, you know, and I can't vote for it um, because I'm R36. I abstain because my relationship is being your lawyer and representing these issues. Um, but we need to do it pretty quickly. So we need to get the Democrats and the Republicans going into the General Assembly to deal with this right up front, probably have enough votes. So we, we call it emergency legislation, where instead of it becoming law July 1 after the governor signs it, we can send it to the governor's desk as quick, quickly as possible, put the enforcement mechanisms, the tax and regulatory uh, enforcement mechanisms in place and have that bill signed in January, quite frankly, January, or early, early February, start receiving the tax revenue allow these businesses to continue. And I just don't get the warm, fuzzy feeling um, from this letter. And maybe I'm wrong, Hermie, uh, but I've been at this, you know, at this political stuff for a while. And when I read that letter, I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken for the governor's office. I was heartbroken for these small businesses. And I, and I hope maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it, or maybe I'm not reading enough into it. Uh, but I think uh, for my party, what I fear is, is, this is going to give the Democrats a very firm uh, position with they stand for small businesses where historically it's been Republicans who stood for small businesses. And instead we seem to be wishy-washy on something that I think is a very simple issue at this point in time. The gaming industry is here to stay in Virginia. The gambling industry is here to stay in Virginia. Let small businesses participate who live, work, play, raise their families and operate their businesses in Virginia and keep the money here. You know, and as we head into the holidays, I know it's easy for people that are not affected by this to say, I don't care. Or, you know, if you don't like gaming, you know, you, you kind of turn your nose up at it. Or if you feel like, well, if a convenience store has to have a skill game to stay up and they don't run a very good business, the business climate has never been as tough as it is now. But more importantly than that, forget the arguments about. Is, is a skill game gambling or not? Or was SB 971 unconstitutional or not? Or what? Think bigger than that, Bill. If, if you don't really understand all the ins and outs of a skill game and the law and the Constitution and all that, just think about it simply. Do you want the government deciding what businesses succeed and fail? And do you want the government telling people where they should go spend their money? Right. And if you don't. Right. Exactly. That's really what this is really all about. We can argue all day long about, is it chance? Is it skill? 
is this constitutional? Did the Supreme Court get it right? Did it get it wrong? But here's the nuts and bolts of it. The government is picking winners and losers, and the government is trying to tell people, if you're going to go do this, you have to go where we tell you to go to do it. This is the United States of America. This is the Commonwealth of Virginia. It ain't supposed to be that way. Yeah. Now, a whole other side of this is, you know, for the last four or five years, the Commonwealth of Virginia has had an, you know, a big-time influx of money, tax dollars, all these things coming in that is going away. Those things are drying up. They're washing up. The Commonwealth of Virginia is going to need or they should want to use this estimated close to $200 million a year of revenue steady, easily. Steady revenue. That will be steady regardless mm-hmm. of the profits of these companies. Yeah. Get these this tax money in somebody's, you know, Louise Lucas has got programs that she wants the money for down in Portsmouth. You might have programs up in your part of the state. School modernization. Yeah. Right. So, you know, when I, when I really think about those two components, number one, you know, by the governor, not saying this is what I believe. And I look forward to working with y'all on this it would have been much easier or much better had Governor Yunkin put something out there that all these small business owners that are worried about making payroll next week could have read this letter and said, my governor is behind me. My governor cares about me. He missed that opportunity. More than that, it would have been good for people like you that are in the General Assembly, Republicans and Democrats, to have a clear understanding of where does Governor Yunkin stand on this issue because if you're unsure and all these new legislators are coming into the general assembly they're scared to say and do a whole lot on some issues because they don't want to be on the wrong side of the governor or they don't want to be on the wrong side of their party right so in an an opportunity where there could have been some clarity the governor fell short i'm sorry on making things clear on where he stood. And so, and then, like I say, it, it's like, is it is it just okay with people that the government is treating people like we live in another country? That you go where we tell you to go, and we decide who gets to do this kind of business, not you. And I'm like, what are we doing? I mean, what is the, what am I missing? And so I hope, um, although I've learned so much, Bill, in this process, not only in this lawsuit, but running for office and all that, I mean, that's one reason I ran, because I wanted somebody to represent Southside Virginia that had a spine, had a backbone, that would do and say things to try to help Governor Yunkin get his agenda passed so long as it was in the best interest of the what is now the 17th Senate District in the Commonwealth of Virginia. All this go along to get along and got to wait to see what this person says and wait to see what this person says and let's do a poll on this before we decide. I mean, come on now. We're talking about the Commonwealth of Virginia and the rights of people and the free market system and all these things, and that stuff is not supposed to be for sale. And the governor should have made that clear in this letter, and he didn't. Yeah. Um, could have been better. And, you know, just to follow up and, and believe me, I like these guys. They're good Republicans. If they want to run for office and, and, you know, 
Youngkin wants to run for the U.S. Senate, I'm going to support him. Uh, Miares wants to run for governor or run for attorney general again, I'm going to support him. Um, I just think, you know, even Jason or his office said that they were pleased, happy with the court's decision, happy that the injunction was removed. I mean, what does that say to small businesses? That's not the best messaging um, when, you know, you claim, hey, I'm here to enforce the laws, but now you're saying you really like this law by, by implication, if, if not directly. And again, what does that do to small businesses? One, it makes them scared again because they see him as the top cop in the Commonwealth of Virginia. He's the enforcement arm. So they're losing sleep. And they're, they're losing money. They're losing sleep. Uh, they're having to lose employees because they can't pay the wages now, the high wages that this government artificially set. And now, you know, you got people that say, we're for small business saying, man, I'm happy you can't keep those games on, man. You know, and maybe Jason's against gambling, but this is not gambling. This is gaming. Uh, and, and, you know, he may be against gambling, but he's supposed to enforce the, the laws, as he says. Well, you know, why not stand for small businesses? So I, I, I think that was a miss, too. And I'm just kind of mystified because that's not what we Republicans, conservatives, pro-free market, pro-small business, think. And, you know, look, I'd put in a law. I've written a bunch of bills here because we've got pre-drafting done. have to get it done by today for bills in the General Assembly in 2024. I would love to write a bill that says all gambling is illegal in the Commonwealth and pass that sucker. But it's not going to happen. It's here to stay. But we've said this over and over. Shouldn't Virginians be allowed to participate, not just in the, you know, going to the Baccarat table, but shouldn't the small business be allowed to participate in providing opportunities for people that want to play these kind of games, especially skill games, to come to the store and, and play? And, and in the recording that you couldn't hear, but hopefully everybody else has heard, uh, it was made very plain. These games provided not only a source of revenue, but also provided... Revenue because people were coming in buying the chips and the drinks and, and the other things. And, and there's real uncertainty there. And I think the governor and the attorney general could have provided some stability simply in support of the small business owner, whether they couldn't, whether saying, yep, we're going to delay enforcement might have been a bridge too far for them. It could have been said a different way. And so I hope said it earlier. I'm going to say it again. You can't pass this legislation in Virginia regulating and taxing skill games for small businesses to be able to participate without a bipartisan solution. That includes the executive branch and the legislative branch. That includes Republicans and Democrats in the House and in the Senate. We need to come together. I think we're going to. Remember, you know, I asked you for on a scale of one to 10, uh, and I think it was a nine. I can't remember. You were like a four. I really am confident that our General Assembly Sees the problem, saw it now when our injunction was lifted. That's why last week's episode, or two weeks ago episode, was winning by losing. And I think we're going to get something done here. But we need the governor to join hands with the small business owner. We need the attorney general to say, I'm not going to come in here Gestapo style and take out your games and put you on the ground and arrest you and ruin your business. It's not that hard to say. And they haven't said it yet. Well, Messaging, messaging is important, and I'm hopeful even through all the trials and tribulations and the roller coaster we've been on with this lawsuit that ultimately Governor Yunkin and Jason Meares will, they don't even have to even pick sides. They just have to 
be open-minded to these small business owners and operators that have been here the whole time, spending their life working, operating businesses and employing people and paying taxes in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Yeah. Well, so I hope, I hope they'll keep their, keep an open mind and, and please, and, and they're, you know, all we're, all anybody is saying is put the brakes on here for a minute, send it back to the general assembly, give y'all a chance to do your job. Don't kill the, we're Yeah. Don't kill the small business. Don't punish the small business just yet. Right. Let's see if we can, we can unscrew up our screw up. So, we'll uh, so this is going to be an ongoing thing. We're going to be, you know, broadcasting our, our uh, podcast through the general assembly session in January. So we're going to keep you totally informed on this. This is about freedom, Liberty. It's about getting involved, standing up for your rights, stopping government overreach, doing what's right, doing what's fair uh, under the circumstances that we've described. So yeah, we, we, you know, you know how I know we're passionate about this. How? Because every time we start a podcast, we say, let's spend five or 10 minutes talking about the skill game <laughs> update, then go to other stuff. And we, an hour later, we're still talking. Yeah, 55 minutes to be exact. But uh, but this is important. You know, it really is because yes, you've said People's it before. People's livelihoods are on the line. And, you know, I said this, and I say this respectfully. I, I, I don't need – my family business doesn't need skill games to survive. But a lot of businesses in the Commonwealth of Virginia do, and we're putting business owners, mom-and-pop operators, families, their their employees and their families, kids, everybody in some terrible positions right here at the holidays simply because the people with the casinos um, are trying to get to a, to what they want. And what they want is not what things are supposed to be like in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Yeah. So during this holiday season, you know, I don't call what the casinos have done uh, a victory. And I hope, I hope at some point in time they realize what they're doing to people is not a victory either. I, I from the looks on the lobbyist faces at the, uh, at the financial retreat for the Senate, uh, they didn't look too happy. A lot of senators coming out and saying, we got to fix this. We got to tax and regulate. They should have a space at the table. And, uh, and I think uh, good things are going to happen. Like I said, um, you said it was a four. I, I'm still confident it's a nine. I think we're going to do the right things, but stay up with us on, uh, on every week of the podcast. We'll let you know exactly what's going on. Now you're up to date on this stuff as our journey continues three years in and this podcast was partly started because of it and we'll keep informing you all the way through the general assembly in 2024 and it's very important because it's not just it's skill games now it could be another issue of freedom later and if we're not vigilant thomas jefferson said vigilance is the eternal price of liberty if we let the government control through big business now we've opened the door and you'll never get it closed again so um that's uh hey, i'm not gonna, i'm not gonna say who it's from but you and I got a, a, a text, a group text you might want to take a look at. It was okay. addressed to me and you both. <laughs> right. You know how to throw me off Kinmo. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we can't even talk about this on the podcast, but that, right, it's funny. That carry was what on. we were talking about earlier today. So, so, so as we talk about the Virginia General Assembly, a couple issues came up, and, and that's why I guess this is – what we're going to talk about today, we're more leaning right. We're not turning left because it's the racing season is is mothballed. It's the winter time. We're going to get ready. And we'll, we we'll are testing though. We did do some testing early go? this week at Caraway. Bobby Labonte. It went great. So we're you... uh, trying to get better and find more speed and drivability. We ended ended the year on a really good note, and uh, but we want to carry that momentum into the winter and kick off next year with a uh, guns a blazing. So we've already tested and 
listen to this, Senator. Mm-hmm. Lay it on me, next Big week, Betty. Next week, we're actually going to the wind tunnel. Wind tunnel? Yeah. We got that kind of bread? <laughs> we, we, we're spending our money in wise places. Is my, is my wallet going to fly out of my pocket here on this one? I mean... Before a little bit. <laughs> well, every time, every time we had a wreck during the season, first I get this itch in my right where my wallet was, and then it start to burn, and then I have to like roll around on the on the ground and put it out. I, look, I threw up more than once last year. Worried mm-hmm. about. That's why. That's uh, why you'd but, leave, so you wouldn't see me. Yeah. So I wouldn't yeah. see you throwing up, right? But we uh, had a great test. We're trying some new parts and pieces, and we are going to the wind tunnel uh, to work on the, our aerodynamic situation and see if we can find some more advantages and things. Uh, on our cars, so okay. Have we got Just the uh, you know. Have we got the uh, car lineup, driver lineup, all all done? Waiting on you, Chief. <laughs> That's not my problem. <laughs> all right. Um, now we're talking about you know back to the General Assembly. Yeah. Uh, same thing, going in circles, what, that kind of thing. Yeah. What what uh, what, um, what, uh, what have you got on your plate, on your mind, as far as things you are uh, proposing or bills you're thinking about? Uh, dropping uh, with session coming up. Yeah, and, and well, first, I mean, think about it this way. You know, we just went through a November election season where the Democrats won 21-19 in the Senate. That's one seat from a tie. 51-49 took back control. We were 22-18, so we, Republicans, gained a seat in the Senate, went down about four seats in the House, 51-49 after redistricting. Democrats are in control. Remember what they were preaching, and you and I were talking about this before. That are the extreme MAGA Republicans agenda, extreme taking away your freedoms, you know, extreme MAGA this, extreme MAGA that, and and uh, you know, banning abortion when we offered the fifteen week ban that you and I talked about probably wasn't the best um, strategy that that was employed from the top down. Uh, but right after they they picked their leaders and Scott Servo's uh, elected majority leader, known him since we were young attorneys in Fairfax, Don Scott's now the speaker elect of the House. That's pretty historic. Well, they come out with this press release, and I sent it to you as well, where they were going to stand on these initial pieces of legislation. And in this, in this press release, I was kind of shocked. The Speaker Scott said, um, this, this legislative agenda that they're putting forth, they put forth a legislative agenda. We are sending a message that there is no room for the spirit of Jim Crow that has plagued our Commonwealth for far too long. Jim Crow laws being laws that were separate but equal or segregated um, our population, which I don't really understand that. And then Scotty Suravel said, Virginia voters sent a message on November 7th that they want Virginia to remain an open and welcoming state that honors individual freedom privacy and economic opportunity for all of its residents. These four measures will help make Virginia the best state in America. To raise a family and start a business. So, what are those four pieces of legislation? Well, let's see. Um, One, they're proposing a constitutional amendment, an amendment to the state constitution, H.J. 1, House Joint Resolution 1, that would enshrine in our constitution the fundamental right to reproductive freedom. And then reproductive freedom, remember, that's a clever use of words to mean abortion. The resolution, uh, I think it's... uh, Cree Deeds is carrying it in the, in the Senate, Boisco. Uh, basically, it allows for abortion to be enshrined in our Constitution without any limitation. Right now, 
under Roe v. Wade, the, the state here is, I think it's 26 weeks. Abortion without, you know, abortion on demand, basically, in, until the 26th week. That's the first trimester. Now they're saying abortion up to and after birth and enshrine it in our Constitution. That's really protecting the, the rights of the unborn, isn't it? The, the future Virginians of our world. You know, th- this is kind of, to me, when they said we were radical and extremist, this seems to be, you know, they've gone from uh, safe, uh, legal, and rare. That was their mantra, what, 10, 15 years ago when I was first elected. Now it's abortion on demand even after birth, which in my opinion is murder. Um, and so you can carry a baby to term and decide to abort it. As Ralph Northam said, put it on the table and then we'll go have a discussion whether you want it or not. I mean, this to me is radical, and this is what we got in the 2119 and 5149 Senate and House, respectively. This is where Governor Yunkin, I think, will be using his veto pen. I don't think, well, actually, dang, this is a, the governor does not, cannot veto a joint resolution to amend the Constitution. What happens is you have to pay, pass it two years in a row, and then it's sent to the voters, and the voters vote on it. And the governor can't veto this. Sorry, I I forgot about that. So we'll have a constitutional amendment that will enshrine up-to-birth abortion in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, I think that's a sad position to take. I mean, they could have restored Roe at 26 weeks, could have done the three trimester. Roe versus Wade, you know, and and of course, Obergefell overturned Roe versus Wade, but said it was a state's decision. What we're saying here, according to the Democrats, is the state's decision is no term is too long. Late-term abortions, which almost most Americans object to and are opposed to, would be enshrined in our Constitution. It would be an abortion factory in the Commonwealth of Virginia. You know, come kill your baby here. And I think that's a, a, a bad move on that part. But rather than being rational at 26 weeks on demand, 26 to second trimester being if there's some medical complications in the third trimester, uh, prohibited except in life of the mother incest rape. Uh, so what do you think? I mean, I'm, I'm just blown away by this. You know, they were supposed to be the reasonable people coming in and instead they're doing something in my mind, extreme. Yeah, that's sad. Uh, I hate it for the Commonwealth of Virginia, but Democrats won on this issue, won on the messaging of this issue. And I know you and I believe similarly about the, you know, you know, about life and every life is a gift from God. And I've got three beautiful daughters and you've got kids. And, you know, just having that thought, you know, um, it's just, it's heartbreaking to me, but elections have consequences messaging has consequences. But, but to your point, to, to, to use politics on something like this to, to gain an advantage or to, you know, or to, um, uh, you know, create uh, division. It's uh, it's very, very unfortunate here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Yeah, and kind of sad. And and, and you, you kind of hit on something there, the messaging. I mean, uh, we were accused of being radical, you know, abortion ban, even though ours had a limit to it, slightly below, 11 weeks below what was allowed by Roe. Theirs is no such limitation, you know, and, and I was just reading something where since 
Roe versus Wade's overturning by the United States Supreme Court and turning it back to the states, which I think was the right. It didn't ban abortion like they kept saying. Just turned it back to the states to make those determinations. Over 30,000 babies have been born and saved by that alone. 30,000 lives. You know, how many, 30,000, how many of those are liberals are going to grow up to be liberals or trans or, you know, or whatever. I mean, but at least they had a chance at life. You know, Ronald Reagan said one time, you know, it's ironic to, to me, I think he said in this way, that the only people, uh, you know, uh, wanting abortion are those people that are already born. And here we have, I think, what would be the most radical leftist policy enshrined in our Constitution. I mean, we'd be looking like California. And so ultimately the voters will vote on it if it goes, and they'll get it in two years because they got the majority for two years. Um, and so this would go on the ballot and then I guess we're going to have that conversation again and we need to educate the people that this is the radical policy, not the other. The other uh, joint resolution they want to put in the Constitution is an automatic restoration of rights. If you're convicted as a felon, you lose your civil rights. That's your right to vote, hold office, uh, serve on a jury, basically. Uh, that would be an automatic restoration uh, once you've paid your debt to society. I don't, I don't have a big deal. I don't have a big problem with that. I really don't. I think, you know, right now we have that ability, but the governor grants it. Uh, and I think all the governors, Republican and Democrat, have been about the same in the granting of those restoration of rights. I think there's, you know, some people that do certain things. If you harm a child or murder those, I don't know that you need to have your rights restored and sit on a jury uh, or run for public office. But that's my feeling on that. I don't know if there's a limitation, but now they're going to have Virginia voters vote for that. You got a, you got a problem with that, Herm? I mean. And then the big one that will affect all small businesses, which we've been talking about today, raising the minimum, minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. So they can be for small business and skill games and for the worker, but that will harm small businesses. I think this is a dangerous precedent. 15 bucks an hour we're seeing right now, aren't you? I mean, talk about this a little bit because you see it more than I do. Um, you know, a lot of, in a lot of positions, that are would have been minimum wage positions or low, um, you know, low need for higher education positions. They're paying more than fifteen bucks an hour already. Yeah, we've blown past that in most cases simply because of the, um, the climate, labor climate, in most parts of Virginia. Uh, as business owners, we're having to compete with the government on. And, and trying to beg people and encourage people to come to work when the government in so many ways rewards people who don't come to work or don't have a job and all that. So the first thing we do, we have to do here on this issue, Bill, is uh, we've got to change the culture. We've got to change the culture of the pride of a Virginian and the pride of American, and that is to wake up every morning and put your clothes on and go to work and provide for your family. Those that are able, let me make sure those that are able, right. there are some people that are not able and deserve the protection um, and the benefits of the government. And, but there are so many people that are beating the system. Um, but I go back to what we've talked about. You know, you can really apply this to most anything, the free market, the free market system, should be deciding and somebody's work ethic and commitment and loyalty to a company should be determining what somebody makes to work for a company. And so if the government's going to come in 
and basically tell a small business owner, you have to pay Jimmy $15 an hour minimum, whether he deserves it or not, because we say so. And we know more about your business than you do in the economic climates that you're faced in. You got to pay him $15 an hour, regardless of whether or not he shows up to work every day, whether he steals or not, whether he's a team player, all that. Doesn't matter. You got to pay him 15 bucks an hour. Then basically what you're telling me is you're going to prevent me from paying Bill, who's worth $25 an hour. I can't afford that because I'm having to overpay another guy that should be coming in at a, not a living wage, but a starting wage to work for a company. And then if he proves himself within the framework of the company, if the company's profitable and we think about benefits and insurance and all these other things that are expenses to a company that the government has no idea what those costs are, then you have the ability as a business owner to reward people that deserve to be rewarded. So the simple fact, I don't I wouldn't care if it's eight dollars, three dollars, fifteen dollars, or twenty-five dollars. The government knows nothing about my business, knows nothing about your business, Bill, and has no business of trying to uh, dictate what somebody, what business should be paying somebody to start because and it's got to be some differentiation between somebody's wage to start to come to work is not, if they're a good employee, I'll give you an example. Bill, of the 313 employees that work, and I would call the Sadler companies, we do not have one, not one, that's been with us for 90 days or more that makes minimum wage. Because if they don't fit into what we need and want in our culture, and don't do a good job and show up to work every day and all those things, they don't stay here. So uh, it's just more government. Some people want to get up as politicians and stand on the front page of the paper and say, look what I got you. I got you 15 bucks an hour, even those of you that don't deserve it. And when I look at that, I say, I want the next paragraph to say, Watch out for these major, major price increases that are going to be coming in the way of hot dogs and hamburgers and Pepsis and snacks and drinks because we've got to raise our prices and our margins to pay these wages, in some cases, to people that don't earn them. And so that's that's the small print that nobody wants to talk about. Yeah, I mean, this morning I was on my way to court, and since I was missing lunch, I got, because uh, we're doing this podcast, and that's why I look so good, Herm. See how good I look today? Look you are a good looking man. Man, hunky piece of man candy. And then um, I've got court later this afternoon, but I stopped at the McDonald's. I got breakfast, you know, one of the meals, you know, a little bacon, egg, and cheese action. $9. Yeah. Bacon, egg, and cheese, a hash brown, and a small drink. $9. And I'm hearing from friends that are paying like 15 bucks for their, you know, lunch at, at McDonald's and other areas. I mean, that's $9 down here in Southside. So um, I think the governor, is going to get the old veto pen out on this one. And we got two years at least of his protection uh, for small business in that regard. He could really join these together. But and see, and that's what I worry about. I don't want this to get into a partisan fight again, it, which then could affect small businesses in the skill game uh, marketplace for them to participate in because we're fighting over stuff like this. But this seems partisan. It's always their mantra. I mean, the 
Minimum wage right now is what eleven, twelve dollars an hour. Um, you know, I, I don't pay minimum wage around here because lawyers that come fresh out of law school want a hundred grand and don't want to work forty hours a week. And uh, my God, even legislative aides and those kind of people, they're they are friggin' expensive. They make more than I do. Hi, folks. This is Hermie Sadler. Thanks for listening to our all new podcast, Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. I hope you are enjoying the show as much as Senator Stanley and I enjoy bringing it to you. Whether you're a family traveling together or a truck driver hauling freight up and down the highway, I hope you will take the time to visit one of our Sadler Travel Plaza locations in Virginia and North Carolina. Sadler Travel Plaza locations are licensed dealer locations for pallet travel centers. And we also carry Shell Motiva petroleum products for our four-wheel friends. We pride ourselves on providing one-stop shopping for service, food, and entertainment. Our food options include Five Guys Burgers and Fries, Quiznos, Dairy Queen, Hermie Sadler's Faux Show Bar and Grill, Victory Lane Restaurant, Hunt Brothers Pizza, Dunkin' Donuts, and much, much more. Our locations include Sadler Travel Plaza in South Hill, located off I-85 at exit 12. The Sadler Travel Plaza of Emporia, which is conveniently located on exit 11B off I-95, and Sadler Travel Plaza on Highway 58 in Suffolk. We also have our North Carolina location, Sadler Travel Plaza in Dunn, North Carolina, that's exit 75 off I-95. We appreciate all of our customers, and Bill and I appreciate you listening to Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator, powered by Pacematic. Hey, this is Bill Stanley, Hermie Sadler's sidekick on this podcast. When I'm not in Richmond at the Capitol or doing this podcast, my real job for the past 27 years is as a trial attorney with the Stanley Law Group. Here at the Stanley Law Group, we represent our clients in every courthouse in the Commonwealth. No problem is too small for us to solve. No case is too big for us to win. Whether it's criminal charges, traffic offenses, civil disputes, litigation matters of any sort, we handle it all. We make sure that we treat every client like family because they are to us. Your problem is our problem. Your success is our success because we hate to lose more than we love to win. And believe me, we win a lot. Don't believe me? Go ask Hermie. I'm his favorite lawyer and he hates lawyers. So give us a call at 540-721-6028 and let us help you. Or visit our website at www.vastanleylawgroup.com. That's www.vastanleylawgroup.com. At the Stanley Law Group, we'll make sure we're the lawyers that you swear by and not at. The last one, which is most important that I want to talk about, there are some other crazy bills, and we'll keep talking about these bills as they start dropping because they never, they never uh, disappoint with some of their wacky stuff. Senate Bill 2, House Bill 2, prohibition. This is a gun ban bill, and this bill, if passed, would prohibit the purchase, possession, sale transfer, whatever, of what they deem to be an assault rifle or an assault weapon. That definition, from what I can tell from this, uh, this uh, bill that's dropped, is everything from a large magazine firearm, a handgun, to an AR-15. So you would become an instant criminal if you even possessed one of those. Okay? So they're trying to take away your Second Amendment rights. I don't think this thing passes constitutional muster. Uh, I'll be damned if I think it would, but who knows in this crazy world today with the Supreme Court's the way they are. 
but this would prohibit the possession of any firearm that they deem to be an assault weapon, which is their favorite word, assault weapon. They think, they think AR means assault rifle, and it doesn't because they don't do their homework. But they're trying to take our gun rights away. That, again, seems radical and extreme. Not, as Scotty Serval said in this press release, protecting individual freedom, privacy, opportunity. Not at all, man. I mean, I'm a little, you know, but you, I guess you got to expect it. But here we go. They remind me all the time when I go to uh, Richmond that uh, my dad used to lovingly say, when I want your opinion, I will give it to you. That's what they seem to be doing, especially to us down here. Now, I want to, as a disclaimer, I was out on my boat uh, for these Democrats, so they know this, and it got a little rocky. You see, you know, the, it was a little rocky at Smith Mountain Lake, and all my AR-15s fell out of my boat. And, and into the water, and I couldn't fish them out. So I don't, I don't have any. But, but they want to take away everybody else's and make you a criminal for exercising your Second Amendment right. Bill, you know, you're a, an attorney. I know you help a lot of people, a lot of different things, criminal defense, traffic. You know, and this is, I'm going to oversimplify this in the first part of it, but um, if I drive through your county up there running 100 miles an hour, they shouldn't write you a ticket for something I did. And so this, to me, is a simple situation of them trying to take away the rights of law-abiding citizens like me and you because they are unable or unwilling to put people that do bad things in jail properly and put the proper amount of focus, help, money, resources uh, on the mental health side. So don't tell me it's going to fix the problem of gun violence by taking away the rights of people that respect rights that they have. Don't break the law. Uh, Taking a gun away from me or you is not going to curb crime. You look at the most crime-ridden cities in the United States of America, in most cases are the, are the ones that have these strictest gun laws. So that's not the right approach. We have to, these same people that when we talk about getting the guns off the street, including taking away from the ones that obey the law are the same ones that are unwilling to give teeth and directives to Commonwealth attorneys and other officials across the Commonwealth of Virginia and the United States of America to properly penalize people that commit crimes with guns. So it's a, again, it goes back to messaging. They're trying to get something done that they want, that, that, that they you know, that, um, that's a high, high item number for them. But when you look at the common sense of it and really what it's going to take to curb the trend of violence in the United States of America, it just, to them, it might look good on paper, but in reality, it doesn't work. It's not been effective. And their, um, their, uh, their motives are misguided, in my opinion. I totally agree. I mean... It's just handed to me. AR does not mean assault rifle. It means Armalite rifle. 
And um, one of my aides here who has read the bill says it even applies to banning the magazines themselves. Uh, this goes way too far, and I expect the governor's veto pen to get out again and protect people's think, Second Amendment rights. Bill, let's look. Nobody wants to see these acts of violence by no. criminals that Hell affect no. innocent people. I mean, nobody. But somebody who is either has mental health health issues or a criminal that's going to break the law, this is not going to even apply to them anyway. They don't care. Right. The people that are doing these things do not care what the law is. Yeah. So there, it's not until we start trying to, you know, and how, how, how frustrating is it, Bill, that when we have one of these quote unquote um, tragedies, disasters, the ones that they want to bring it to the public to try to gain politically, not right. all of them, right. just the ones that fit the narrative. And then every time without fail, a week or two later, we come back in here, here are all the signs that, we knew this person had problems. There's social media posts. The FBI was involved in some type of investigation several years ago, but you know they swept it under the rug or whatever the case may be. And so if you want to be serious about cleaning it up, be serious about cleaning it up with the ones that are actually committing crimes. Yeah. Not trying to do something because it may score you political points, but in reality, it's not going to do anything to affect the people that are committing the crimes because guess what? Newsflash, they don't care about the crime. They don't care about the law anyway. No, gun-free zones, the Virginia Beach shooting, mass shooting, that was a gun-free zone. Didn't really work out, did it? Uh, gun-free zones are only for the law-abiding uh, to not bring in their firearms, which could protect people when a, a bad guy comes in with a firearm who doesn't read the sign. And you know, like they, they think naively that, We'll put this sticker on the ABC store. It says gun-free zone, and the guy will be going, man, I'm going to go in there with my gun, and I'm going to rob him, and I'm going to take some liquor. And then all of a sudden they go, uh, wait, there's a sticker. It says gun-free zone. I need to go back, put my gun back in. I'll just stick my finger in my shirt, and I'll go in there and say, hey, give me all your money because this is a gun-free zone. No, but the law-abiding citizens walking in there, maybe concealed carry, he sees the gun-free zone sticker. He goes, all right. He walks back, puts his firearm in the car. Uh, doesn't work. You know, it's taking firearms out of the hands of law-abiding people. It does nothing to stop the criminal. Criminal wants a gun, he's going to get a gun. Gets a gun, he's going to use a gun. That's, this is backwards thinking. And, you know, out in the country where we live, it takes 15 or 20 minutes for the police to get, you know, anywhere. But my wife is proficient in a firearm and with an Armalite rifle uh, and can scope you in. And we can hear you coming from about a half a mile away anyway. Uh, so, you know, again, they don't, it's tone deaf and they're just being silly. And here we go. They're the, they're the rational ones. And this is all right, right out of the box, man. Of the top four, three of them suck. Governor, use your veto pen because it will pass the house and it will pass the Senate and I will vote against all of them. So anyway, that's just the start. We'll go, we'll talk about their wacky bills and more episodes coming up in, in the future. But what I wanted to do next was talk about some of the, the bills that we had talked about, you and I have talked about, it, and now my staff and I have put together, I want to kind of drop through to, to demonstrate what normal rational bills look like. And you can tell me if you don't like any of these, but um, so these I'm going to, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I'm going to read about seven. I've, I've drafted about 30. Now I'm going to tell you one of my favorite bills, and hopefully the Democrats are not listening, but we came up with a bill yesterday 
which would ban the sale of electric vehicles where any of the parts, including mostly the, the battery, that any of the elements of the battery were obtained from countries or from companies that use forced labor or slave labor or child labor. That'll drive the Democrats nuts. They'll be like, we like electric cars, Ooh, forced labor, child labor, uh, slave labor. I mean, I can't wait. It's kind of like the porn bill that we, we had an episode on that was very funny. I drafted that bill to drive them nuts. This is my bill, but shh, don't tell the Democrats. It's coming, okay? Yeah, just, he promised not to say anything, okay? So anyway, here's some of the bills. Uh, we've written a bill to public the, to create a public school trade incentive fund program. This uh, fund program is proposed to provide grants to school boards that want to restore or create programs to teach uh, students skilled trades. We're, we're having a trade drain in Virginia, man, and they've shut down Votech in a lot of these schools. We want to create a kind of private-public partnership, which then incentivizes these schools to go back to the trades. Uh, school uh, Department of Education would administer. Let's bring the trades back to our high schools. Uh, we think this is a good bill. Now, I'll tell you already, buddy, your bill that uh, you and I worked on and, and you championed, the STEM robotics bill is SB5. I've already filed that. So that robotics bill has already been dropped. These are the ones we've been drafting that, are, that we're going to drop. Um, another bill is a bill called, we call it student records, innocent until proven guilty. We've seen college too much. A lot of students, anonymous complaints come. You know, it's a lot from the woke left, but it, it can come from either way. Anonymous complaints that go into your personal file or some action may be taken against you and you as a student don't even have a right to know about it. And so this bill would require public institutions of higher education to, to employ certain procedures of transparency when investigating anonymous reports of student misconduct. The student itself, each student that may have an allegation of student misconduct are treated fairly and have a, uh, an opportunity to defend themselves against these allegations. We see this going on in a lot of these higher um, education institutions, a lot of these liberal left run institutions, we think transparency for the student is important. Another one, we've called this phone stop learning. I went into a, a, a school to talk to a bunch of kids in civics classes, and all I saw were kids walking up and down the hall, holding their phones, staring at the phones. Even in gym, they were doing this. Some of them even when we were talking now. So I believe that phones are bad in school because it stops learning. And also it it encourages bullying because these kids are taking these phones into bathrooms where there may be fights or something or encouraged to fight. And then they put it on the internet. And I think that is a change. Something you and I Herm, have never had when we were growing up. And so this bill would permit school divisions to ban the possession of cell phones and or any handheld communication devices by the students during the school day, during the school hours. After that, before the school hour, after you can throw it, you got to throw it in your locker. You could get suspended. Another bill is an animal cruelty registry. You know, uh, people that harm ch uh, animals are more likely to commit violent felonious crimes against human beings. I think if you're convicted of a felony um, abuse of an animal, you should be also then put on a registry so that people that are maybe adopting animals out, receiving agencies, but also the law enforcement agencies would know whether you are a good person to have a dog or not and whether... If they're investigating that this person has had a felonious conduct against an animal and abusing them. That's part of my dog and cat legislation for the year. And then another one, uh, Herm, which I want your input on right now. You and I talked about this and especially with, uh, with your activism in, in the autism community. I've been thinking about and worked two or three hours with my staff on this, on how do we bridge that gap? And we call this 
uh, Bill Bridging the Gap, a pilot program to prepare parents as behavioral health technicians for autism spectrum disorder students. Do you like it so far? Yes, I do. Okay. This bill proposes a pilot program to train and license parents of children with ASD, autism spectrum disorder, to become certified and licensed as behavioral health technicians, what they call BHTs in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Those BHTs would then be able to volunteer in the school system where their children's children are enrolled, working under the supervision of qualified, and you brought this up to me, ABA. This is a, this is a applied behavior analysis is what that stands for. And it's been really kind of uh, uh, incredible in terms of the treatment of autism and, and certainly uh, in the growth of, of children with autism as they grow to gain those skills that they'll need later in life. And you really kind of sold me on this. So the goal of the program is to provide much needed support to these children with autism, to our kids, our lovely, beautiful kids who have ASD and to help the parents gain those valuable skills, those teaching skills and experience in the field of behavioral health to help them as they grow up. It kind of creates a collaborative effort between the school and the, and the parents and the child, because you were telling me how much that was lacking and you had to go to another uh, school altogether in order to find uh, the proper education uh, platform for your daughter, Haley. It is a unbelievable lack of qualified uh, teachers, therapists um, to to use the ABA therapy um, to give kids the opportunities that they need and deserve, especially Bill at a young age um, when when kids are first diagnosed, even before they get to like a quote unquote school age. We talk a lot about what schools can provide, you know, but. Most kids that are diagnosed with autism are in the two to three year old um, neighborhood. And if we can provide a mechanism by which parents and or family members are helped with or trained or put in a position where they can help their own kid or someone in their family and to your point, um, you know, volunteer their time um, at school systems to try to bolster those programs because, you know, you go, if you got a kid with autism, eventually you go and get a, um, you know, you go meet with the school system and you get a IEP, which is an individualized education plan, uh, which outlines the services that schools are supposed to provide for these kids. And very rarely do all these services actually get provided to the kids mm. and it's not in all cases because the, 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 the schools don't want to they just don't have the funding or the staffing to do it so you get kids that start missing these sessions of aba and get they miss speech therapy they miss occupational therapy not because they're not at school or not because they're not there to get those services is that the local units are not able to keep up and provide all these services, and in, in these services, in most cases, are never made up. And so what they miss, they, they never get back. And that's early intervention, and, and the treatments and therapies these kids get early on um, give them the best chance to be productive members of society later on. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Angie and I went to uh, a gala up in South Hill for the Families Embracing Autism Together program that you and I played in a golf tournament together and had mm-hmm. raised money for 
in the past, they're opening a a service center in South Hill called the Bailey Center for Special Needs to provide some of these services or subsidize the schools and other things around uh, the school services and things around uh, South South Virginia. And the one thing, it was many things that really got mine and Angie's attention. But one of them was, I remember back in 2002, when my daughter Haley was diagnosed with autism, the stats said that one in every 500 kids born would be diagnosed or affected by some level of autism. Wow. Fast forward to 2023, it's one in every 35. Bill, one in every 35 kids uh, are going to be affected in some way, shape, or form by autism spectrum disorder. So we've got to have more resources. We've got to have more help, more money, more support for facilities like Families Embracing Autism Together, more support for the school systems so that they can better provide quality services, those that are that, those that they are lawfully obligated to provide. Yeah, and I've done this as a, a pilot program to get it off the ground. Usually pilot programs are lesser amounts that need to be funded. And But what I really wanted to see from basically our conversations, and maybe we'll call it Haley's Law, Miss um, Haley's Law, because it just seems that you have that collaborative, you had that drive, you and your wife, Angie, had that drive. It's made a huge difference with your daughter. Um, why don't we put tools in the toolbox for the parents that are also then helps the schools. So we're probably lessening the the headbutting that goes on with the IEPs and we're being more collaborative and having greater outcomes for these children because it's really ultimately about the children. And so you and inspire what? what? I know another place that we can get a little bit of funding for this. Where would that be, Hermie Sadler? We could remember the uh free market system and fair oh. government wow what? approach oh. go back and fairly tax and regulate skill what? games illegally operated what? skill games in these small businesses skill games in Commonwealth of Virginia and take some of this estimated two to three hundred million dollars of consistent <laughs> tax income to the Commonwealth of Virginia and use it for the a program like this that would help one in every 35 kids in the Commonwealth of Virginia get the products and services they so desperately need and deserve. Gadzooks, you have a great idea there, Hermie Sadler. What the heck? That is a great idea. And that could turn this pilot program into a permanent program where everybody could benefit from it. Because ultimately what we're doing is we're just trying to educate and certify parents. So they can help in the in the growth of their children as they as they grow up and and what a, sounds like a win 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 doesn't it? So you like that, don't you? You like it? Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's much needed. And not only uh, that, see any way that any way that me and my family uh, and to certainly have Haley's name attached to it in some way, shape, or form would be a tremendous honor for us. Well, and uh, count on that because that's the way it's going to be. But see, I listen to you. You inspire me. And this is what you get for it. So, and I hope some things that that just should be simple and easy, and everybody should agree on. I hope this would be one of them. Yeah, and so you know, and my staff's rolled out this already. 
This is not hard to do because already there are online classes available to become one of these certified behavior techs. So it's not that taxing. And all you got to do is take a class that's certified by the BACB, the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. And so, you know, we think we can do something here that's really going to ultimately make a difference in these child's li- children's lives. And that's what we care about. So thank you for that. Great. Let's, uh, so, and I need you up there uh, lobbying for this bill because you have awesome influence. As you've noticed, we stand together and people want your picture and with them. Uh, so I'll need that as well. So another bill, and I'll just run through these as quickly as possible. Virginia promised what we're trying to do is lower tuition rates in the rural areas and inner cities to like 500 bucks a semester. It's a plan that actually North Carolina rolled out. I'm going to put it out there. I'm sure the, uh, some of the other, it's not for every college in the, in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It's for like Radford or an HBCU or UVA wise, where we can make college affordable for all students, regardless of their zip code or their, their, uh, economic status and not have to go into debt forever. Um, if we're paying for the colleges and they have these large endowments, let's, let's get together and make it affordable, finally affordable for our students because college costs have risen like a thousand times more than the rate of inflation in the United States. And so I think this is a, something that can, can really work. I'm going to throw it out there and get it killed, but we can have a good conversation. I also then wrote a bill that turns our small tracks in Virginia, the historic racetracks, um, you know, the South Boston's of the world, the, the Frank County speedways in the world would be designated historic landmarks and also be designated as enterprise zones, which would encourage uh, use of those tracks, preservation of those tracks, get tax breaks for those tracks, and ultimately in an enterprise zone situation, help small business grow around those tracks. So uh, this is based on us, you know, and our race team and our involvement with the, with Pacematic that's done a great job. And uh, and the Smart Series, the Southern Modified Series, that's really kind of building uh, grassroots racing where you came from, Hermie. I mean, you yeah. raced on these tracks. This is where you started. These are where dreams are made and professionals are born in the Commonwealth of Virginia. We need to protect these tracks. That's the best I can idea I can do to come up with to protect them. You got any other um, ideas or am I on it? No, I think you got a good variety, a good assortment, and a good starting point. And I'm sure between now in the next podcast and certainly between now and when session gets closer to the time you'll uh you'll have more things on the table but of course the you know the one uh, autism related one is the one closest uh to me and be glad to participate in anything i can do to yeah, I can't help wait. push that one i can't wait i love lobbying with you and working a bill with you and i can't wait to do it again uh that's just my way of getting you to stalk me man hang out with me um <laughs> so yeah you know i know you love dogs and cats uh Naomi has cats. You have dogs. I got a spay and neuter fund. We've got an overpopulation of dogs, especially since the pandemic. They're arriving in our shelters and it's because we're not doing spay and neuter in the way that we would. So what this does is create a program uh, to allow low income people to receive free uh, spay and neutering for the cats and dogs. It's funded. Basically put a surcharge on the, and I've already talked to the the creators of, you know, food, uh, you know, the food, uh, you know, companies that do food and cat litter and that kind of stuff. We put, you know, it's like a tax at the rack. You could say in, in, in our gasoline tax, it's at the rack, not you at the pump. This is actually getting the manufacturers to participate and buy a fee by the use of a fee, putting in a general fund that is used to make sure low income people can spay and neuter their dogs and cats. More of the bill. Stanley loves animals, cats and dogs, Senator Stanley, Senator Beagle uh, legislation. I've tried it before. It got, crushed, but I'm willing to try it again because we really got a problem right now. Then 
uh, unleashing innovation, the creation of the Virginia Regulatory Sandbox Program. That's what I'm trying to do here is create a new department within the state government that would lessen regulations for innovation uh, that would especially to allow to test new products and innovator, in, innovation services or production methods without having to comply with all that red tape that we put in place, federal and state. The goal of the program is to encourage innovation and economic growth in Virginia and relax our regulatory process, which allows innovation to occur. Uh, so that's that. And so that's just some of them. I've got some other ones here. I, I won't uh, belabor the point too long, but do any of those sound radical like abortion after birth or banning your second amendment rights? I mean, that's a Republican agenda. That's a Republican I mean, creating an agenda. What you should be doing and what you are doing is, is stand behind and fight for things that Republicans are known for and what you're good at, what the messaging is good on and stand behind what stand behind what you say and believe. Uh, I, I hope ultimately some of these other crazy radical things that people will come to the senses and really realize that political messaging and things of that nature are more important to some people, but actually getting things done and passing legislation that's meaningful and helpful to uh, real people uh, here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, hopefully we'll get some support and maybe some, you know, some uh, bipartisan support. Some of these things you're talking about, as I said, I've learned <laughs> You know, not be surprised by anything, but they seem like things that, you know, everybody should be able to get behind. And I hope they do. Yeah, and me too. And I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping we've got some other ideas and we'll talk about them uh, in later shows as we develop these things. But right now we're doing the sausage making process. We're coming up with ideas, kind of finding the legislative framework. That is the code that section we want to amend and kind of importing our ideas into them and then drafting them up. And then we look at them 100 times. And if we like them and we change them. Then we'll file them, and then some of the bills we won't file. So we've got about 35, 40 bills, ideas that we have. This happens every year, and we'll file some, but not all. But that's a little taste of what the differences are between a Republican and a Democrat. One wants to take your rights away and, and allow abortion on demand after birth. The other one wants to create innovation and, and protect dogs and cats and you know, you know, protect our children on the autism spectrum disorder. Uh, who may have autism and and empower parents. That's the difference. That's what we should be comparing, contrasting with. And you know, and I'm not alone. There are a lot of Republicans that that write these bills uh, or carry these bills if they haven't written them themselves or come up with these ideas. We always come up with our own ideas. So that's that's that. The last thing I wanted to talk to you about before I have to go run off to court is all of a sudden in the news, and this is probably going to drop tomorrow in the trials tomorrow. But I wanted to bring it up, Senator Gazala Hashmi who moved allegedly into the new district that used to be uh, that Joe Morrissey was in. Joe graciously moved down to uh, Petersburg and then got beaten a primary uh, so that Senator Hashmi, a Democrat, could move down there and run because it's a heavy Democrat district. And instead, you know, then she turned on Morrissey. Uh, and then it turns out she said she rented an apartment. The allegations are filed in the Circuit Court of Chesterfield County, a petition to determine that she's not, she was not qualified as a candidate, challenging her residency. And we had this talk about residency with Chet Mouse. And uh, here we go again. She rented an apartment and never stayed there. And there are witnesses, neighbors, who have seen her staying at her old apartment in the old district, not in the new district. And I am told there are witnesses who see she goes in 
to the apartment once she kind of got caught that maybe she didn't live live there. <laughs> she goes in through the front door, parks her car, leaves the lights on, empty, uh, exits through the back door, and her husband picks her up around back, and they go back to their house, put the garage door down, and she's still staying there even when she uh, has been called on this. So we have a trial coming up tomorrow. It'll be probably today as you're listening, starting to listen to this Friday, which would be December 1st, I think it is, or it might be next Monday, huh? Not sure, but I'm just trying to catch up where her residency uh, is challenged, which if if proven uh, would mean that we would be at 2019, not 21, 2118. I'm sorry, 2119. We'd be at 2019. See, I'm not a math guy. And um, could Can really say that again. What, what, what would it be? It'd be 20, 2019. So she would be 39, 20 <laughs> out of 39. Yeah, 39. Because mm-hmm. she would be vacant. I, some people have been telling me that if she was never qualified as a voter, then she couldn't vote, then she couldn't file it, then maybe it would be considered a solo election and the Republican who ran, who got beat pretty handily, would become the... That was my question. Would yeah. it be just a vacant seat or would there be some kind of mechanism to to put somebody in that seat? And that's the great question. If she's removed, found not to be a resident, not a valid voter in the district, she could never have been one, does the loser, the Republican loser, now become the senator in that seat? And that would be only for four years, and then he'd probably be gone. But then it would be 2020. Who brought this up or who who brought up a challenge against it? So it's some neighbors, um, and it's a public filing, but looks like one, two, three, four neighbors, and I think they're in the old district, not the new district from what I'm reading, which might be an issue of standing. Um, but, uh, four neighbors have been watching very intently and know that she is not living in the new district in her, I'm using air quotes here, apartment. And, uh, and, and see, when you change districts, if you, you have to live in the district at the time that you are certified as a candidate and at the time of the election happened with me. I mean, I had to move when they redistricted after one year in the Senate, I had to move from Smith Mountain Lake down to Glade Hill. Uh, and I moved and the, and the press followed me and, they were trying to challenge and see if I really lived there. And that's that's the famous story where uh, they followed Ralph Smith, who moved into my district, Republican, and they looked through the windows and they saw nothing in the, nothing in the garbage can. They stuck their heads in the garbage can and then they said, well, we're coming over to look at your, you know, and I lived on a farm at the time and I moved. I, I loved where I moved to. And I was there and I said, well, if I see one of your guys, you know, you're welcome to come over. But if I see one of your guys uh, with their heads stuck in a trash can, uh, they're going to get a snoot full of my Glock. And the Democrats went crazy. And so did the press. Oh, how they threatened the reporter. That's what the Roanoke Times said. Front page headline. Friggin' ridiculous. And uh, there was a guy named Mike Sluss, who was a reporter in Richmond for the Roanoke Times. And they're like, oh, we, th- we think we got Stanley. And I was in a tight election against a 17-year incumbent Democrat. And Sluss goes, no, I think it's only going to help him. Because, <laughs> you know, we're Second Amendment people. And it did. It, it, so they kind of learned to back off after a time. That was the same year I told him, please don't endorse me. I need you to endorse my opponent. So I have a shot. And I won by 644 votes. So there you go. Uh, you know, residency is important. Now, we had this conversation with Shep Moss. Remember? There's a way to yeah. do this. Uh, yeah. It seems like she wasn't even trying. She was just, I mean, this, if it's true, these are allegations on a piece of paper in a petition. It seems a little arrogant in my mind. I mean, look, You're I moved. It. Yeah, I, it cost me money. It, I had two houses. I had double the expenses. Rules for thee, not for me. Rules for thee and not for me indeed, my friend. So, you know, we got that going on. So that might kind of throw a little action into the General Assembly session. I think it's, you know, those are always top 
tough hills to climb, but we've had people removed like in the Virginia beach city council for this. So it, it, there is precedent to get this done and uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. So next week when we get back on the show, we need to, to discuss the outcome of that. But I thought this would be a good setup. But, I mean, what do you think about that, Herm? Would you move to try to win a seat? Well, I would not. I mean, with the redistricting, redrawing, all that, I mean, if, if you wanted to run and, and represent a certain group of people and the rules say you have to live within that district, you should have to live in that district. I yeah. mean, how how can the people or the constituents of that area trust her if they can't even trust the fact that she's living where she says she lives? I don't right. know. I don't know her. She's probably a nice person. Don't get yeah, me wrong. You know. But a basic fundamental thing that you should expect from an elected official is you should be able to trust and believe everything they say every time they say it on every issue. And if she's willing to fudge on where she lives just to get elected to office. Will she be willing to fudge later, you know, on certain things going on, whether or not they, um, you know, positively impact the people she's supposed to be representing. So it's just a basic foundation of things that I think you should have to run for a whole public office. But guess what? She's not the only one over there. Yeah. Is living on shaky ground. Yeah, yeah. I think there are a couple of people that might, their residency might be called in question. But I moved. I moved. I loved where I moved. I moved into an old house built in the 1700s on a farm. It was wonderful. It was the greatest thing ever. And uh, But I had to, you know, it cost money in terms of, you know, having two households because I had a lake house and, and then had this one. And uh, moved permanently into Glade Hill and, and have loved it ever since. And But was there. And, and, and look, you got to live by the law. That's the other thing. You make the law but you also live by the law. And if you show that that the law is for thee and not for me is the same thing you did, well, then can you be trusted even to uphold the law when you're supposed to be making the law? I mean, that voters and the people you represent shouldn't have to wonder that, man. Good question to ask. Yeah, it's a good question to ask. So we got that going for us, which is nice, but I got to run off to court, man. I got to go defend somebody else. And let me tell you, Herm, you know me, I've been in a, pissy mood since our loss, but at least I'm back on the winning trail. One, two cases this morning. I got a third one. I think I got in the bag. Um, feel pretty confident. One yesterday for some doctors, believe it or not, casinos, they went outside to relax. They'd had some drinks. The casinos were mad at them because they, they were challenging uh, maybe a pit boss, something like this, where you know they weren't paying their bills. There was dis- a disagreement. Casino calls the cops. Cops get them out of the car and immediately arrest them for, drunk, uh, for DUI and drunk in public. Representative motion to dismiss, boom, one. So one victory for the good guys against the casinos uh, yesterday, and then we're going to go uh, try one more case today down in Henry County. So I've got to run, and so I don't want you doing what I do to you when you got to go. <laughs> well, Bill, what do you think about it? <laughs> <laughs> I got to go. Uh, so, uh, um, but I think a very interesting uh, episode we've just uh, completed, and we're back on track. We're back from Thanksgiving break. Uh, we've got another episode, not only at the end of this week, but we got another one we're going to drop next week, and uh, we're going to have a whole bunch of fun as we head towards the end of this year. And so, uh, so we'd uh, hi, Miss Haley. Hi, Miss Phil. How are you doing? 
I'm good. Um, what are you doing today? Well, I've got um, being a lawyer and I've got a bunch of court cases and I'm talking to your dad here for the podcast. And uh, I think that's it. What about what you? Today? Um, I've done pressure toys. I've done um, the, the silverware, the tea and the bath and the, the tables and everything. I've done all kinds of stuff. They brought in peanut trash and absolutely to them all done for today. Awesome. Well, you were more productive than I was. I feel like a piker now. I feel lazy. Yeah. Well, have a great I, evening. I got I got to work tonight with actually pizza. It's gonna be all day today. I got to work tonight. And when mommy go? Oh, mommy has to go see grandma because Papa is at the hospital today, so he's gonna go check on him. So just me and daddy. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Well, I know you love today that. You know everything going on in our life. I love the catch up. <laughs> I'm waiting for I'm waiting for daddy to be finished so I can go back to work before because I got to get my strength and yeah. yeah yeah I got to be busy right? yeah well it sounds like you guys are going to have a fun evening huh I so. yeah you make sure he makes it fun for you okay Miss Haley I will I'll do my very best perfect okay and I'll see you very soon okay bye bye great way to end the show <laughs> that is you can't find a better way than ending the show like that uh, that's why we do what we do, isn't it? I mean, that's that's why this bill is what it's going to be. And, and I think that's a great inspiration for everybody. What a wonderful young lady she is. I'm Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley, going to court, leaning right. And I'm Hermie Sadler, turning left. Thanks for listening. Thanks to all our sponsors, including Pacematic, leaning right and turning left with Sadler and the Senator, powered by Pacematic. We'll see you next week. God bless you all. Conrad Thompson with SaveWithConrad.com. You've heard me bragging on the podcast for years about helping people save money on their current house, but did you know that I can help you with your next house as well? That's right. We can get you into your next house with zero down. No money down loan programs are still available, and I know it sounds too good to be true, but we can do it for you. And by the way, home ownership is more affordable than you might think. We routinely turn renters into homeowners and we hear back that their new house payment is more affordable than what they were paying in rent. Why would you keep doing that? Stop throwing your money away, paying for someone else's mortgage, and start building wealth for your family. And let my family help at SaveWithConrad.com. You don't need perfect credit to do this. We can improve credit scores down to the 500s, and it's worth mentioning, we never say no. We say not yet, but here's how. You need a game plan to buy a house, and that's where we come in at SaveWithConrad.com. We'll ask you, what down payment do you want to make? And zero is an acceptable answer. And what monthly payment do you want? And then it's time to go shopping. Find out how easy it is and how affordable it is to become a homeowner at SaveWithConrad.com.